0: Good morning. Hope you guys are doing good. He's fired up about the egg hunt. Yep. I'm more fired up about a hamburger, but um, anyway, glad you're here. Uh, And uh, it's a cool time of year. Uh, Awesome, not cool like weather. It's actually kind of warm, but it's like it's a really good time of year um, to really be reflecting on what Jesus has done. Not that we shouldn't do that all the time, but especially this week, thinking about uh, the week leading up to Jesus' death um, and resurrection. And and I hope you have spent, or will be spending some time thinking about that. I also hope uh, that you've been thinking some and pondering, studying, uh, praying about some of the things we've been talking about on Sunday morning. And the last few weeks, we've really been looking at how do we grow? as a church, as individuals, but realizing that our individual growth ultimately leads to um, the growth of the church, or it should um, lead to the church coming into the fullness of what the church is intended to be, and, and we talked about that before um, Before we started into this, uh, looking at particularly how do we grow, we talked about how God has given leadership to the church and different people, not just the paid professional staff, but But all of us have different giftings to use, and some have been gifted in ways to equip the church for the work of ministry to carry out those functions and and to do those kinds of things. And so we've been looking at that. I want to continue today with looking at how we grow, and uh, what I want to share today is really essential, not that any of it isn't. But I feel like specifically for where we are, this is um, something that we need to really grab hold of, wrestle with, um, embrace, challenge ourselves with. Um, and and let God really search our our hearts uh, in this. And so um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 today. Last week we were in 15. We're just going to back up a few verses, and we'll be in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Um, I want to read that and then uh, pray for us, and we'll get into the message here. Luke 14, 25, it says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he says. So here's Jesus. He's on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified. Um, He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with the ten thousand men, with ten thousand men to oppose the one coming against him with twenty thousand? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Father, today I do pray that. I pray that we would have ears to hear what you say. God, the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that today we would have the eyes of our understanding opened more to grasp how high and deep and wide is your love for us and that that love would compel us into the purposes you have for us. God, thank you for all that you've deposited, given into our lives. Lord, I pray... um, that that investment, God, would be something that brings a great return, a great harvest for your kingdom, and a great movement of renewal on the face of this earth that would bring you glory. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you have ever done this? I'm sure many of you have. How many of you have ever made an impulse purchase? Impulse purchase. You saw something, you're like, got to have it, cha-ching, right? Um, how many of you, it was a very large impulse purchase, like it was probably 72 months, 0% interest, and you're like, how can I turn that down, right? For some of you, it was like 30 years, 4.5% interest, and you're like, yeah, let's do it. And so um, some of you, you bought it, you got home, and you're like, why did I do that? For some of you, it was your home, you know, and so um, you, you, we've all kind of done that and made those purchases. When I look at this passage, that's kind of what I think about. I feel like Jesus, you know, he's got these large crowds following him, and he wants to be very clear with them. He wants them to understand what it means to follow him, what it means to be his disciple, a learner of his ways, a, a follower of his ways, uh, what it means to walk in relationship with him. And so he's trying to be very clear with them, and, and I, I pray that that's what happens today is that God's word is very clear with us. And in this, Jesus wants them to see that, look, if you're going to come and follow me, there's a cost to that. It's not a small cost in terms of what the world sees as cost. It's a large cost. it costs everything. And so that's what I really want us to look at today is how this works. It's, it's one of these things where it's sort of a it's sort of just opposite of the way the world sees it. It's one of these things where we can't really wrap our mind about around how we lose our life and find it in Christ until we do, right? Because it doesn't make sense to our mind. In fact, counting the cost, as Jesus talks about here in this passage, counting the cost of following Christ, of being Jesus' disciple, of walking in in the Spirit, of being in relationship with Jesus, it's never going to make sense to us until we see what Jesus has poured into our life what Jesus has given into our life. Until we see that, until we begin to grasp how wide and deep is the love of God, we sing the song, Reckless Love, that God would do anything to come after us in his love. But we have to realize that that and while that is true, it's not the end. But when we see that love, we see what God has poured in. The Bible speaks about the riches of God's glory, the riches of his, riches of his grace. You know, we've talked about that being Him doing for us, in us, and through us what we can't do on our own. Seeing what He's deposited into me, into our lives. And how rich and deep that is. I realize that what it costs me is so far worth it. It is so much worth it. What He has given, what He gives, the life He gives, the purpose He calls me to is so much greater than what I give up. But it's hard to wrap our mind around that and it doesn't make sense until we've experienced it, until we've seen it, until we've tasted it. In fact, for a lot of the church today, not this just church, but the church, in a lot of ways, the good news of Christ sounds like bad news. Because we can't really wrap our mind around how good God is. We haven't yet tasted The goodness of God. When we look at this passage, in my prayer, listen, guys, today, Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding to see you more clearly. That's when we count the cost with joy. I want to be clear before we get into this too far that this is something I've been wrestling with. This is something that I've been dealing with in my own life. I've been asking myself, am I counting the cost am I still willing to count the cost am I still willing to lay down my life am I still still willing to do this am I still um willing to lay it all on the line the way I was 10 years ago 18 years ago have I become complacent and comfortable I've been having to ask myself this and this week as I was Just praying. There was a lot of things going on in my mind and my heart that I've been pondering. And I decided to write them down. And I want to read this to you. It's not a pity session. I don't want you to hear it that way. It's an honest evaluation of myself and where we are. It's not something to be depressed about. It's something to get up and keep going towards. It's something to overcome. It's something to, to say this is the honest evaluation and truth of where we are. But praise God, he's got more, right? So this is, this is what I had on my heart this week. It says, after 10 years, I mean, really the life of this church, after 10 years of well-intentioned effort, we must make an honest evaluation of our lack of effectiveness. If we look at the testimonies of what God has done over the last 10 years, they do not go beyond how they were helped, brought through a bad personal situation, or came to know Christ. There's very little testimony about how people have selflessly moved the kingdom forward, plain and simple. In many ways, we've missed the mark. This was certainly not intentional. You do not know what you do not know. It's like parenting when you didn't have good parents. You simply do the best you can and learn what you can along the way, hoping you don't screw it up too badly. That's not talking about my parents. That's just in general. After 10 years of ministry, we find ourselves in the same rut and broken system that the vast majority of the church finds itself in. We have achieved the undesirable position of having a form of godliness, yet denying in many ways the power of God. There are only two options available that will provide an out from this rut. One option is to blow it up. Just toss this work to the side and start new. Honestly, sometimes that's most appealing. The other is to work within the system to try and move away from the system. I honestly don't even know if this is possible. The apathy, lack of understanding, acceptance of status quo, and tendency to cling to what we know may be too much. In other words, the rut may be too deep. To continually put people back into familiar environments with only subtle changes may only keep them returning to what they know. If we do attempt to pull out of this rut rather than starting a new work on on new ground, We will not be able to make the transition without some bold and rather radical changes. When a vehicle is stuck in a deep rut, a gentle tug will not get the job done. There must be a sharp and deliberate force or even multiple sharp and deliberate forces that not only move the vehicle forward but also get it clear of the rut so that it doesn't fall back into it. In other words, we will not get out of this rut by playing it safe and making non-invasive and seemingly unnoticeable changes. The changes must be sharp and deliberate. We must be willing to lay it all on the line. The issue is not that we should have had a greater focus on discipleship or service or evangelism or whatever. The issue is that the church as a whole has lost its way. We've lost our first love. We've lost our purpose. And with loss of love and purpose, we've also lost our power, passion, and perseverance we tried to minimize the cost at the cost of experiencing less of the power of God. We've crowded our plate with our desires with no regard for God's desires. We see God as the fixer of our things rather than the creator of all things. He exists to serve us rather than us existing to serve him. The humble service that Jesus provided on the cross no longer compels us to humble ourselves in service to him. For us, God is a God of convenience. We love to have him be a part of our life when it's convenient to invite him in. Our discipleship has become a periodic volunteer work on our own terms when it's at our convenience. God bless you. Have a good day and great Easter. Enjoy the egg hunt and I'm not really done. So, But there's a lot of heaviness in that. Obviously, um, and that's where my heart's been, not just in the church, but with myself, really in a place where I'm having to ask myself tough questions, am I still laying it on the line? Am I still, you know, seeing clearly what God has done for me in me, what he's even done through me at times so that then the cost is minimal. My I seeing God's mercy consistently in his word and worship and prayer? So that when I see his mercy, the reasonable act of my life is to offer it as a living sacrifice. Not to try harder to make myself better. But to love Jesus even so much more. To receive his love even so much more that I'm compelled to follow and compelled to call others to follow him. It's interesting, in Luke 14, 25, it says that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And it's funny to me, like every time Jesus gets a large crowd, it's like it seems like he just drops a bomb on them, right? Like one time, he's got these large crowds following him, and they're all amazed at him, and he's kind of becoming a rock star. And he looks at and he goes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me, all right? <laughs> we know, like we look back on that and go, that sounds like communion. They're looking at him going, you want us to eat? That's cannibalism. And it says that they turned and many of them deserted him. And instead of Jesus going, wait, 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 don't go, don't go, don't go. He looks at the disciples and he's like, y'all want to go too? And see, here's, here's the difference. In the American church, we do everything we can to keep the crowd. Jesus did everything he could to show them their reality. The reality of being dead in sin, their reality and need for a Savior, their their reality for uh, them to come and follow Him to find real life. He was more concerned with them coming to a place of embracing reality and seeing clearly who He was, who He is, and who He would be for them than He was making sure that the crowd stayed. In the American church, we don't do that. In the American church, we this is this is so. In the American church, we send the message, it's about you, right, to, out to the community. Uh, even in, within the church, we we, try to, we tell people, it's about you, and we don't do it explicitly. We're like, it's about you, come to church. What we do, though, is we craft messages and series and everything else to say it's about you. If you're broken, come Jesus will make you well. You know, if you're hurting, come. He'll help heal your pain. All of that's true, but we play on the need of people. And so we tell them in roundabout ways and and, and kind of hint at it to them that this is about you. But when they come into the church, the church gets mad because they think it's about them. Right? Because we're like, yeah, we're like, come on in, come on in, it's awesome. And they were like, why don't you serve? And we, we, and we get confused about it. It's like, well, we're the ones sending conflicting messages. You know, we talk about how people, and we see articles and books about how do we get out of the consumer church mindset. And, how do we, you know, the church is full of consumers and we say you shouldn't be consumers, you should be contributors. And But here's the thing, if we keep feeding people's consumer mindset, how do we expect them to quit consuming? See, we've got to become more consumed with God's purpose, his love for us, but his purpose in his love for us. And less consumed with our own popularity as the church. I recognized this a couple of years ago. I was, I was in this trap of, of, of trying to make Easter the biggest day. Like We were like, let's blow it out. There's going to be a bunch of people. We're going to blow it out. Woo! What can we do we've never done? Shoot fireworks in the building. Drop confetti. What, what can we do? And then I realized one day it hit me. I'm like, they're not coming back anyway. It doesn't matter if Jesus himself plops through the ceiling and preaches the message. The vast majority are not coming back. And I'm like, the church is spending so much time and energy and effort. And we do this and we're like, it's going to work this year. It hasn't worked in 50 years, 100 years. It's going to work this year. And every year Easter is the lowest attended Sunday in the church calendar. Easter's at the Sunday after Easter. Is that not crazy? But maybe if the crowd comes, maybe we can keep them. Maybe we can keep them. I don't see Jesus as concerned about that. Does, did Jesus want them to turn away? No. The Bible is clear that God doesn't want anyone to perish. But the truth of it is, Jesus, if he was going to bring them to something, it had to bring them to the truth. And the good news is good news for a reason. When we see clearly the reality of our spiritual condition and, and the death that we're in apart from Christ, and we come to life in him, and we taste the goodness of God and the power of the Spirit, then something happens in us that makes us want to be with Him. When we want to be with Him, we begin to recognize this is costly. Listen, it doesn't make it easy, but it makes it reasonable. It doesn't make it where it's not a battle at times, but it makes it reasonable. I get it. I understand. I know. I've tasted I want that. It's worth it. Help me, God, push through it. Help me, people around me who are going the same way. Grab my hands. Grab me by the neck. Grab me by the ear if you got to. But take me with you because I want to go after him. When we look at these verses, specifically, let's look at verse 26. And then we're going to jump down to 28 again and read that. If anyone comes to me, I cannot see even with glasses. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Does that kind of send a shiver down your spine or a little bit of heartache into your, your spirit when you think about Jesus saying you can't be my disciple? That to me, that ought to bother us. It bothered me when I read it again. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? And listen to the reason that Jesus says this is important. He says, if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you or mock you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Now when we look at verse 26, this is one of the verses that over the years I've had many people push back on. Because they look at it and they go, that's just not right. I can't love my mother and father. I can't love my wife and children. That's just not right. I'm just not doing that. And I'm like, okay, calm down. Let's back up. Let's interpret scripture with scripture. Jesus tells us elsewhere to love our enemies. I doubt he's going to tell us to love our enemies and then say, hate your parents. I doubt he's going to tell us to honor our mother and father and they go, hate him. So we've got to look at this and realize there's something else going on. There's something else happening. What's Jesus telling us? He's telling us something about our allegiance and our loyalty. He's teaching us that if we're going to follow him, our allegiance has to change. That when we come to faith in Christ, we're no longer identified by our last name. We're identified by being in his name which is a really good thing in a culture where suicide is going through the roof, where anxiety and depression and all these things, I've struggled with it, I'm not knocking it, listen, where it goes through the roof, isn't it a good thing when we realize I'm not bound to my identity, I can have his? So we look at this and we go, well, I don't want to take allegiance to Jesus and I don't want to have his identity. Why? He's not saying we can't have these relationships. He's saying, but you've got to shift loyalty and allegiance to me. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to follow me, God is the first love. That's challenging. He goes on when he's talking about you know, counting the cost, one of the things he's telling, I believe this, is he's looking at it and going, look, if you don't count the cost, you'd be mocked, right? Well, well I, I believe part of that is when we're mocked, when we're ridiculed, what, what does it affect? It affects my, my self-image. It affects how I see me. He's saying, look, look, if you don't come to this place where you find yourself in me all of your life, you're going to be worried about being mocked. Look, if you don't count the cost and you don't follow me, you're never going to be secure in this. If you don't count the cost and find the cost worth it, then you're going to spend your life struggling with this. He's saying, but if you'll come to me, and you'll find your, your identity, your security in me, if you'll put your allegiance in me, if you'll come to me and follow me, then you find a security you've never had before. He's saying, look, It's going to cost. It's going to cost. But in light of what he's given, what we give up is so reasonable. Verse 27, he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He goes down in verse 31 and talks about this king. He says, this king, he's about to go to war. He's got 10,000 men. There's another king who's on the way who's got 20. He said, doesn't that king look at it and make an honest, honest assessment and say, do I have enough resources that I can go and I can defeat this other king? And basically, he's saying, look, if he comes to the conclusion that I can't win this battle, he goes out immediately and he makes peace with that king who is coming. I believe when we look at this and taking up our cross and following, it all speaks to this place of surrender. When you look at the first part here, and it says if anyone comes after me, they have to deny their father mother this allegiance thing. Basically what he's saying is your identity as Jews is not enough to save you. Our identity as cultural Christians is not enough to save us. When we come to this next section, he's saying your resources aren't enough to save you. He's saying you don't have it within you to save yourself. And listen, this this struck me. This actually struck me when I was reading it to begin. He says, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. And he will ask for terms of peace. When I read that earlier as we were opening up the, the message, it hit me. Jesus is our terms for peace. That's the way we come to peace with God, even within ourselves. But it takes this act of surrender. It's recognizing how good God is, who who He is, who we are, what He's done, who we become in Him, and then following Him, carrying out His purposes. And we recognize this. And giving up everything, as He says, is not easy, but it's reasonable when I see and taste the goodness of God. so on one hand, he's saying your identity as Jews or your identity as cultural Christians can't save you. On the other hand, he's saying your resources can't save you. On one hand, he's saying there's a choice you have here in the fact that you can make a decision of counting the cost and whether or not you build the building. But on the other hand, he's saying, listen, the king is on the way and you better either decide if you can do it on your own or if you're going to go make peace with him. We're in a season as the church, not this church, but the the church, where it's it's a season of of, of grace and opportunity that God has given us to come into the kingdom through faith in Christ. But we've got to realize that season doesn't last forever. There's two ways to make peace with God. One is through our own effort and our striving and our straining and our working to try to make ourselves right. Guess what? That doesn't work. The other is through Jesus. The terms of peace that God has given us are in Christ. So we need to see that. Jesus talks about us carrying the cross, and and I want you to see that there's no way forward in following Jesus that doesn't lead to and through the cross but see here's the challenge for us is that the cross is offensive until we see clearly what really happened at the cross and we embrace the cross and we embrace what Jesus has done the cross is offensive on one hand it's offensive to our pride because we have to admit our insufficiency Nobody likes to admit they can't do it or that they're they're insufficient at something, that they're not good enough to do something. But the cross makes us wrestle with that. It's offensive because it offends our independent nature because I have to admit, I have to humble myself and say I can't do this on my own. It's offensive to my will because I have to submit to a greater authority. So much of what's wrong in our culture is that no one wants to submit to anyone in authority, even with God. It's offensive because it offends my self centeredness, because I have to admit that I'm not the main character in this story. That's a challenge, that's countercultural. Because every other message we hear is typically, you're the center of the universe. You're a snowflake. There's no one else like you. You're a fingerprint. There's only one of you. This is all about you. You deserve this. And Jesus comes up and he's like, hey, it ain't about you. It's offensive. The cross is offensive to my dreams because I have to come to this conclusion and realization which becomes good news but it's offensive to my dreams because I realize there's a greater purpose and calling for me that most likely doesn't include my dreams. And we read the the verse that talks about how If we seek after God, God will give us the desires of our heart. And so much we hear that like, hey, if you seek after God, the desires of your heart, God's going to take care of those. I don't believe that's what it's saying. I believe when we press into God, God puts the desires he wants in our hearts. And that we come to a place where his desires become our desires. It's offensive. The cross is offensive to my ambition because it's no longer about me building my kingdom. But see, here's the good news in this. When God opens my eyes to see what really happened at the cross, it goes from offensive to amazing. It amazes me because Jesus humbled himself and died to cover my insufficiency. It amazes me because God became flesh. Jesus walked the earth in flesh, took my nature as a human being to do for me what I cannot do on my own. It's amazing because Jesus willingly submitted to death, the death I deserved. When I see that and I recognize it and it comes with clarity and I keep it in front of me, my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, how can I not surrender my life to Him as Lord? When I see His mercy, how can I come away from it not realizing and recognizing that the reasonable act is for me to lay down my life as a living sacrifice to the Lord? It begins to amaze me because despite my self-centered rebellion, God loved me and us enough to die for us. Even while we were His enemies, not reconciled in Christ, Enemies of God. The Bible said he died for us while we were still in our sin and death, not wanting anything to do with God. Jesus died for us. The cross becomes amazing because I see clearly what happened there. The cross amazes me because I see how small and fleeting my desires are and my dreams are and how great his purpose for us is in this world, for his kingdom. The cross amazes me because Jesus' ambition was not to preserve his life, but to give it up for us so we could join him in his kingdom and his kingdom purpose. See, the cross is the most clear and greatest display of God's love and wrath. The cross is God's greatest display. It's where God's love and God's wrath smash. We see God's love in Christ and what he did for us, going to the cross for us, giving his life for us. We We see his love in Jesus coming and dying the death we should have died and giving his life for us. We see that. But we also see the wrath of God against rebellion and disobedience and sin and injustice because of his righteous character. Uh, He has to do what's just and so he punishes sin. But instead of punishing our sin in us, he put our sin on Christ who had no sin, punished him. But we see the full cup of God's wrath poured out on Jesus. And when we look at that, we see the love of God bring Jesus to the cross. But we see the wrath of God hit Jesus on the cross. The sky grew dim. The earth began to shake. The veil of the temple was torn. Three days later, he comes out of the tomb and he brings us to a place where we can have life in him. A great display, the greatest display, the purest display of God's love and wrath. In and on Christ. The last few verses here. It says, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them, let them hear. It's interesting in this. I checked with a chemistry professor who goes here to make sure I was on... Decent, solid ground here. But it's interesting because salt, actually, pure salt can't lose its saltiness. It's either salt or it's not. And and so Jesus here says, you know, salt loses its saltiness. Is really has no purpose. But what happened back then is there wasn't really pure salt. There would be salt, but then there would be other impurities that were with it. And so what could happen is if you had like a pile of salt and rain or whatever got on it over time, the salt could be washed out of it and what would be left was just the impurities. And so in this, Jesus is basically saying, I believe, that it is possible that, you know, you look like salt. But all that's really there is a shell of impurities. I feel in many ways that this is where the church is today. Have a shell or an image of what we're supposed to be. But that's really all it is. It's hollow on the inside. I don't think it's coincidence that in Jesus talking about us being the light, you know, being light in the world, and then being the salt of the earth, He's not speaking to us as individuals. He's speaking to us as a, as the body. I think it's I think it's interesting. He says we're the salt of the earth, but then here He says if we lose our saltiness. Lost our purpose. I believe this really speaks to the condition and the place of the church. I believe this speaks to me in my own life in many ways. It's something I'm wrestling with and pondering. And, and, and I want I pray that you would do the same. Because I know this. If we're going to get to where God wants us, we're going to be the fullness of Christ. Growing into maturity in Him. If we're going to become the church that God wants us to become that jesus died to create then we've got to evaluate count the cost a lot of you probably have a budget um a financial budget you you know we do we, we do our best to stick with it um but i wonder how many of us budget our life intentionally as I was thinking about this and thinking about counting the cost, I thought, you know, a financial budget, you've got limited resources. You've only got so much. Whatever your monthly income is or yearly income, you budget off of that. And you've got only so much you can spend. When we look at our life, our energy, our, our effort, and how we spend our life, it's the same way. We, we're limited in that. We all have limitations. I feel like where we are and, and where I am and where this church is is We've got to do some rebudgeting. We've got to count the cost. We've got to be willing to look at our life and, and just as I've been doing with the church and, and with myself and taking an honest inventory of where, where what am I doing? And see, here's the thing. When we rebudget our life, we can't rebudget it as if it belongs to us. We've got to rebudget it with the clarity that our lives, if we're in Christ, it belongs to Him. The Bible tells us that we were bought with a price, Jesus paid a ransom for us. The good news is, I'm no longer bound to this world. I've been bought, I've been purchased with a price when I come to faith, my allegiance shifts. My surrender comes to him. We need to take a look and rebudget. We need to take a look and back away and give God a clean sheet of paper that represents our life and say, God, you make the budget. I do this with my calendar a lot here at the church. A lot of times I have to back away and go, what am I doing? that I don't need to be doing. You see, here's the truth, guys, and and this is just truth because we're limited. Many times you have to get rid of good things so you can do the best things. I want to encourage you to do that and, and doing it in light of God's love and grace, His purpose in our lives. I would encourage you to... Not let this message and Jesus' words here just leave you once we've left and we've eaten a hot dog or a hamburger. But I pray that the word that is living and active would continue to challenge and speak to our hearts about where we are. That we begin our pursuit of him. If you don't know where to begin, listen grab somebody in a blue shirt go to the next steps table grab somebody you know that's following Christ get with them let us walk with you if you don't even have a Bible listen that's okay we'll give you one if you go out and buy one get a good one we'll help you figure that out too I know that God has an incredible purpose for us, for His church, the the, the big C church. My hope, my prayer today is that we could see with clarity how good God is to us in Christ. And that because of the riches of His grace, His mercy, the love, that he puts into our life by faith in Christ, the cost may not be easy, but it becomes reasonable. And my desire becomes whatever it takes, I want to pursue him, I want to walk with him. Let's pray, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for... God, I thank you that you won't leave us the same, but you continually to come after us, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that you work in our hearts, that God, your word would work in our minds, that Lord, your word would pull down strongholds, that we would take captive things that just aren't truths, and that God, we'd be set free from all these things that hinder us from following you, God, open the eyes of our understanding. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.